So as we look at this second chapter of John, um, remember, just plant some little reminders in there that now what? No? Is this better? How about no? In the past, have you heard it? But you can't hear it today. And it's still number two. Okay, well, I'll try to speak louder, but if I speak louder, I don't want it to be more distorted because I know acoustics aren't, they're kind of, so does that sound okay? You guys, it's good. Well, you're in the front. It's not going to change? Okay, until he comes in. Well, the Spotify thing is very clear because this is going right to the recording, and I appreciate you guys hanging in there with this. We are praying that we will soon be able to get back to life kind of more normal, whatever that might mean, um, and go back to a more intimate setting. But, you know, we'll, we do what we need to do. We're just thankful that we're able to, to gather together. So if that is loud enough back here, Linda and Amy, can you hear your way in the back? Is that good? Okay. So as we look at, go through John, this is the very first miracle that John lists. And a miracle is something supernatural, um, when Jesus did it, supernatural, and it met a human need. And that's important to remember. The miracles that he did met a human need. We hear about miracles all the time. Oh, fascinating things. And sometimes it's just showmanship, right? So when Jesus performed a true miracle, it met a need. It was a supernatural event. And remember, he is coming down. He's divine. God is intersecting our world. He's coming into our world. So there's going to be a lot of things that are miraculous. Just the fact that he walked among us was miraculous. He performed many, many miracles, too numerous to count, the scripture says. And we know that at the end of John's gospel, he says that he picked these recorded events so that we may believe. So as we look at these miracles, this being the first one, it's not the quantity. It's not that, oh, everything, he did this and this. It was the quality of every supernatural event that proves who Jesus is. It's proving his divinity. It's a powerful and convincing proof of his deity. So every miracle we're going to read about, starting with this one, is powerful and convincing proof of his deity. John has recorded them. Holy Spirit has recorded them so that we may believe. So we come onto the scene of a wedding. And in this time span, since the day before Jesus was baptized, when we had John the Baptist having the conversation to the Jewish leaders up to now, this is a week span. It's only been seven days. He has begun his public ministry once he was baptized. And the very first thing we see him doing in his public ministry is a wedding celebration. This is very, very significant. Weddings are a picture, a symbol of our relationship with God. 
When we get to heaven, we're going to celebrate what? The wedding feast of the Lamb. We are considered the church is what? The bridegroom of Christ. It's a marriage. And that's the true, that is, that is the truth. What we have here in our human marriages is, is a kind of a picture or a reflection of that stronger spiritual proof. And I left my watch at home today, so I'm stuck with this. Watch me drop it on the floor. Want to make that? I'll drop it on the floor. Um, so weddings now, like they're having a wedding. How appropriate, a wedding. I'm going to one this Saturday. Weddings over time have kind of lost some of the significance of the cultural, the Jewish wedding that Jesus was attending at this time. So let's take a peek at what that meant. A wedding celebration for the Jewish community was similar to Sabbath worship. It was very, very important. It was like a holy event because they pretty much understood some of the spiritual, the spiritual realm, uh, the elements that it, it reflected. And when we get to John 14, we'll understand a little bit more about some of those Jewish cultures that Jesus was talking about when he talks about, I go to prepare a place for you. So, very significant. And let me just read you. Ah, you need two hands all the time. Well, before I read you that, it's a little bit different than how we do it today. Today, it's like the bride's family is the one who foots the bill and does a lot of stuff. And I guess that's come around a little bit because they got to be so expensive. Now they have both sides do it. But back at, for this wedding, at this time, it was the groom's family who put the wedding on. They provided all, everything for the celebration, the food, everything. They, they put the celebration on. We find out in, chat, in verse 1, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So Jesus and his disciples are invited guests. But we see that Mary was there. Mary was there probably because Mary was part of the family, the groom's family. Mary was there, and as we find out, we read down more, she was doing some service things, maybe moderating wine, making sure something's going on, but she was there to serve. She was part of the groom's family because they were putting it on, and she was just helping with all the, the celebration, the, pre, the, the, the plans for all of that, making sure it all moves well. Jesus and his friends were invited to this wedding. Okay? Mary was there helping serve. The fact that Jesus attended the wedding is more evidence that Jesus sanctifies the institution of marriage and the ceremony, okay, by his attending. Well, it's a big, big event. It's not just, oh, we're going to get married, whatever. It is up there as a holy holiday. Very significant. And in verse 2, verse 3, it says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. 
Now, I'll be honest with you, I read this for years and years, and I thought, well, you know, we're just having a, a big bash there, and the wine's flowing, and people are having a good time, and the music's going, and everybody's getting tipsy. That's just a party. That is not the case. Let's set all of that straight. That was not the case. The fact that the wine ran out was a crisis. Wine is an important element in the celebration of a Jewish wedding. Wine holds significance in um, many things, but in particularly what I want to read to you here. Wine in the Jewish tradition is closely associated with the Sabbath and with festivals. On the onset of the holy day, on the onset of the wedding day, wine ushers in the spirit of sanctity. And at the end of that wedding day, wine closes it out. Wine symbolically puts boundaries around the wedding day, hence significance in boundaries around the sanctity of marriage. The wine accomplishes a significant task. It marks the boundary lines and separates the holiness of the day from the secular character of an ordinary day. So, at a wedding, the wine symbolizes both sanctity and separation, as the blessing itself indicates. Quote, who has sanctified us with his com commandments and commanded us about illicit relationships. In other words, you are committing yourself to this person forever. No hanky-panky. It is a, is a holy, solemn union. And we know God hates divorce. We know God's a jealous God. And when we are one with him, we know there's a oneness there with that. So with this couple, there is that same mentality. As wine is used at the threshold of the Sabbath to sanctify it, and to separate it, so it is used at the threshold of marriage to separate it from the prohibited and to sanctify the bounds of proper marriage. So just think about that. Everything's going, they've used wine to enter in the sanctity of it, and now it's coming to a close. My goodness, they ran out of wine. They can't do the symbolic thing of, of sipping the wine and having the end. There's no boundary. This is a catastrophe. And it was so serious that the groom's family could be open to lawsuits because he, for, he was unable to fulfill his responsibilities. It could cause shame and shunning, a social mess if this happens, okay? So it wasn't just, oh, we got to go to the store and get more beer. It wasn't anything like that. It was very significant. The wedding may not have been completed, if they weren't able to have that part of the ceremony. So a major crisis. Um, now we see that Mary, in verse 3, goes to Jesus, and he tells him that they have run out of wine. Why did she do this? Well, she was helping serve. By this time, Mary was probably a widow. Otherwise, it would have mentioned Joseph. So if Mary was a widow, who would be her head covering? Who would be the next one to take care of a woman in that day? Would have been her eldest son, and that was Jesus. So there's a need. And as women, we, we go to our authority, our person that, that, you know, our husbands, or our eldest son, or whoever that is. And so she traditionally, thank you, Larry, she traditionally went to see her son, to see Jesus, 
Now, Jesus says something very interesting. Some of you probably thought, man, how rude was he to talk to his mother that way, right? Let's take a look at that. I can quit yelling now, right? If I keep it at this tone, is that better? Okay. So Jesus responds to her in verse 4, and Jesus said to her, woman, whoa, woman, a little bit more informal. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Jesus' response seemed to us very abrupt, kind of rude, but it was signaling to his mother a major change in their relationship. He was no longer primarily her son. He had started his public ministry by now, and he was letting her know that their relationship has changed. It was no longer mother to son, but it was woman to her Messiah, woman to the Son of God, woman to her Savior. And so he was making this clear to her. Now, being the mother of Jesus, I'm sure that would have been blessing upon blessing and and some frustration too, but to have a child like that to raise, if something was going on wrong, he would be the peacemaker, he would do things. I mean, it was, I'm sure she saw and witnessed fabulous things about Jesus, God. Um, And so she knew that she would go to him, she knew that he could fix this. That if she presented a need to him, she believed that he could fix it. She was one of the very first probably true believers in Jesus. Um, So she goes to him, and Jesus responds in that way, letting her know that our relationship has changed here. But nonetheless, she tells the servants, you know what? I know him, I know him, and I know he's going to make this right. So just listen to him and just do whatever he says. And what he asks them to do is kind of scratch your head what's happening here. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, and that's an interesting thing for the purification, all right? Each holding 20 to 30 gallons, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. Why do you suppose they filled them to the brim? They filled them to the brim because there would be no question at all, no magic tricks happening here, no one went behind the back and filled it with something else, whatever. It was topped off. You could not add anything to those jars without it overflowing. No shenanigans. He filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some of the water out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and you know, I thought about this. Did it, did it, what, at what point did it change into wine? Did it change in when they dipped it out? Did it change in when he started to drink it? We don't know, but if, they, if, they didn't, if it didn't change until they actually gave it to the guy, they would be thinking the whole time, oh my gosh, we're going to make fools out of ourselves. But if that changed when they dipped it out and they could smell it, they would have had more confidence in bringing it to him and, and offering it to him to test so whatever, it, it, the miracle had happened. And when the master of the feast tasted the wine, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, because they, my gosh, what happened? It was just empty. No, no, the, the wine barrels or wine skins were empty. Where'd this come from? 
The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The best is yet to come. Jesus, remember, was exchanging the old covenant with the new covenant. He's going to make all things new. The fact that these water jugs for purification was filled with wine. There's so much here symbolically we don't have time to get into, but when we take communion, what do we do? We use wine. Jesus had took the wine at the Last Supper, and he said, this is my blood. We have this cup of wine. We have all this wine flowing to an abundance. We know that the blood of Christ purifies us, and we know that it is abundantly doesn't, there is enough. It is sufficient. So there's a lot of symbolism going on here. He just didn't give them enough wine to get through the end part of the day, but he gave them abundantly. Ephesians 3.20, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask of him? Doesn't he do that over and over? This couple, this family had wine, fine wine, great wine, fabulous wine, for who knows how long to come. But that the miracle was this, fine wine was brought into existence from nothing. This is evidence that Jesus is the creator, divine creator. Who else could do this? What happened here? So the miracle is, is, is powerful and convincing proof of his deity. And it's there to help us believe and it met a human need. So what was, the, what was the results of this first miracle? Verse 11 says this. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. It manifested his glory. It made um, it appeared, his, his glory was um, made apparent. It was, um, his deity was put on display. Many of the signs that Jesus did, people missed the point of that. I mean, the servants here that gave the, brought the wine over, they're the ones that filled the, the jars. They, they firsthand knew what was going on. Did they become believers? We don't know, but we know that many, many of the miracles that he did, people believed or they believed in the sign. Um, they weren't there necessarily to convince people to believe in the gospel. They were there to prove his divinity because a lot of people believe Jesus is God. The demons do, but do they believe in him because he fills a need? And that's what we're going to get into with the rest of this study here today. Jesus' disciples believed in him. They had heard the testimony of John the Baptist. They had spent time with Jesus during this week, these few days. So they heard his words of wisdom. And now they witnessed a miraculous display of his supernatural power. This kind of belief that the disciples had and Mary had, this faith that believes in the purpose of Jesus' coming was to put his divinity on display, evidence that he is God, and that he fills a need. So that faith 
is a faith that believes that Jesus is the Son of God and it came here for us because we need a Savior. Okay. Well, wine set the boundaries around a, a wedding celebration from the secular and the holy. This next part of chapter 2 lets us see how those boundaries between secular and holy had become extremely blurred when it came to the temple worship. The temple what signified God with us. That's where people would go and God would meet his people there. The temples in the Old Testament, they were built because of that. That's where God dwelt with his people. They would go there and offer sacrifices and prayers and, and make their, you know, all their things to, to kind of be in the presence of God. And when Jesus showed up that day in the temple, what he saw was a horrible, horrible, horrible stray from what it was supposed to be. Now remember, Jesus is replacing the old covenant with something new. This event where Jesus goes to Jerusalem, to the temple, and what he finds there, <laughs> there it is. That's the whole reason he need, needed to come with a new covenant, because left to our own devices, we're going to destroy everything, even something that is holy. So we see here in verse 12, after this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few more days and you can look at your map and you can see how far down he traveled and then he went up to Jerusalem in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers were sitting there. Passover was a celebration, uh, a holiday set by God in Exodus, commanding the Israelites to go and to participate in it. Exodus 23, 14 to 17, three times a year they're supposed to go to Jerusalem. Um, and atonement and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, to all t in remembrance of being taken out of bondage in Egypt um, when Pharaoh finally said, okay, I've had enough of this. His son was, had died and just let the people just get him out of here. So this reminder of what God did three times a year is significant. And we need to have these reminders in our lives. We have the Lord's Supper, this do in remembrance of me. We need these things to remind our, ourselves of how great a God he is and what he has done for us. This Passover here in chapter 2 is the first one of three Passovers that John is going to talk about. There, because it was a commandment set by God through Moses in Exodus that they needed to do this, this Jerusalem was packed with people. They had pilgrims from all over the Roman world attending here. Many, 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 many people here. Over time, Passover became really big business for the local merchants. It's almost like, okay, we get the race coming into town. What happens, man? We got the restaurants open. We got porta-potties galore. We have all these people that are just hotels and stuff and the camping world and just everything. I mean, the merchants in the area just, they love it. They love it. Same thing in Jerusalem. 
A lot of people coming. They have needs. We can help them with their needs. This is going to be a major income. One of the things that were, well, two things were needed for the, the Israelites to come to celebrate Passover, to remember it. They needed an animal sacrifice, and they also needed to pay uh, their taxes to the temple, temple taxes, which is also a commandment in Exodus 30, 13 to 14. And remember when Jesus was paying the taxes, they had to pay the taxes, remember, and Jesus said, well, we don't have any, or the disciples said, we don't have any. Jesus told them, in Matthew 17, well, go fishing and out of the mouth of the fish. Remember that tax money was there. Okay, so these are two things that they had to do at the Passover. The animal sacrifice and the taxes. People traveling from far away, some of them maybe didn't want to hurt an animal that far. For one thing, it could get hurt on the way. It wouldn't be an animal without blemish. Something would happen. They would get there and there would be no good or it was just too much of a struggle or a hassle to do it. So they might get an animal when they get there, okay? But also there was a little bit of shenanigans going on because if you did have this little perfect unblemished lamb or pigeon or whatever they had, what they have there, um, yeah, the little sheep, and you get it there and it still was perfect and you bring it to the temple, and remember, this was shenanigans and corruption was going on. It was corrupt commercialism gone wild. Oh, well, that, that's not perfect anymore. You're going to have to trade that in. You, that's no good. You're going to have to get rid of that one here. You're going to have to buy this over here that we have raised. And they would sell them something. They'd have to pay more money, and they'd probably lose that. But what they probably did was take this unblenished land around the back door, over into this little herd flock right here, and they would resell it. So there was corruption going on. They brought their money, and the money monetary system was not universal in the Roman Empire and the places that they came from all over the Roman world. So if they brought their money from their town, oh, not good enough. It had to be a special kind of silver, a special silver. And that's not, that's not going to be, because this silver is so pure and good that you have to use to pay the taxes, You're, it's going to cost you more to buy the good. So it had become very, very corrupt. And the people were annoyed by it, and there was haggling, there was just arguing over, over prices and different things like that. It was like a marketplace. It was a bazaar. It was the smell of animals, the whatever. And Jesus walks into his father's house, a house of quiet worship, a house that's supposed to be pr filled with prayers and praise to find a barnyard with bleeding sheep and haggling and just, you know, just a, a, a attitudes not in the right place at all. Sound of prayers were replaced by the bleeding sheep arguing, bad, bad commerce, overpricing, the people were getting ripped off. It was not the mindset to come into the house of God. Jesus takes a swift action with this. What does he do? Verse 17. Nope. Verse 15. He makes a whip of cords and drove them out of the temple. He, I love this part. Get a picture of this. Now, he didn't hit anybody. You just, you, you just use a, you crack, you crack, a, crack, crack a whip and those animals just need to hear it and they go, okay? You don't have to hit them with it. 
But, so he wasn't hurting, he wasn't doing any kind of animal cruelty here. But he gets this whip going here, and he herds them out with their animals. He puts the people <laughs> with their sheep and starts running them out with the animals. I love it. They have, been, they have degraded themselves to that point where they were just a mockery in there, and he was treating them just like animals that needed to be moved out of there. So he herds them out. He dumps the money all over the floor. So you can just hear what the chaos just went from a pretty bizarre situation to major chaos here. People yelling, people trying to get their animals back, people scrounging around the ground trying to pick up all their coins and everything. What greed was happening here? And he's just telling them to get out of here, telling them to get out of there. He was not going to tolerate mockery in the true spirit of worship. He was not going to do that. Now, this also, I think, was a little bit, not a, it was a very unique situation, not a miracle, but it was unique because he was not arrested. He wasn't arrested. He got away with this. It was almost like his time wasn't come. It's like, okay, what, this guy's in there whipping and ruining our, our, our prophet here? What's going on here? Kind of gets away with it because he's God. The disciples are watching in amazement in verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. They saw it. This, maybe it was a miracle because his deity was on display again, wasn't it? Because they saw this happen. Zeal for your house will consume you. Well, this causes either the Jewish temple guard or someone to come to him in verse 18 and say to him, what sign do you show for us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you, you will raise it up in three days. But he was not speaking about the temple of, he was speaking about the temple of his body. Their wicked hearts were being very, very um, exposed at this point. Their greed and corruption was very apparent. And he answers them with a veiled statement. The truth was concealed from hostile unbelievers. He spoke the truth, but he spoke it in a way that they weren't going to get it. The sign that he was going to give them was a far greater sign, far greater sign. Even if he could put that temple back together because he could have, right? Even if he did, what he was about to do was far greater than that. So the disciples, in 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So it wasn't at this time that they believed. It wasn't until later, after he was raised from the dead, that the disciples, they remembered. Now remember, this is a unique thing. We actually have divinity coming down into humanity. I don't think they quite understood yet what that meant. You know, I don't think we, we even really understand what that means. His death as the ultimate sacrificial lamb, would render that whole Jerusalem temple obsolete. That's why I scratch my head sometimes. We've got another temple that's going to be built. Is it for sacrifice? Jesus sacrificed once for all, but we know the, uh, the abomination he'll be in there. 
So we just have to kind of keep our eyes peeled and see what goes on with that. But there was no need, once Christ was sacrificed and rose from the dead, there was no need for any of the sacrificial stuff to be happening anymore. Okay? Faith that believes in the purpose of Jesus' coming and acknowledges the need. They believed that deity had come, Son of God had come, and there was a need for it. A need for wine to, to finish off that wedding, a need for wine to come down, the blood of Christ to purify us and to cleanse us so we can be united in marriage with Christ, a need for a new covenant to happen, a new, something new that's happening because the old was so corrupt. That's the belief. That is true belief. So this last part here, we're looking at belief. And this sets the stage, these verses 23 to 25, it sets the stage for chapter 3, our discussion with Nicodemus. 23 says, now when the, in Jerusalem, the Passover feast, many believed in his name. And when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him for he himself knew what was in man. Many believed, oh my gosh, this must be God. Who is this guy? Prophet. They believed in him, but it was the wrong kind of belief. Okay? The wrong kind of belief. They believed intellectually maybe, and we know that the demons even believe and shudder from James 2.19. But this belief was shallow and superficial. It did not change hearts. This faith only hears the gospel, but does not take root and grow in it. Matthew 13 talks about the parable of the sower explained. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, and the evil one comes and snatches it away, what has been shown in their heart... This is what was shown along the path, sown along the path. As for that, what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while. And when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And for what was sown among thorns, this is the one whose heart Here's the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of the riches choke the word out and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, indeed bears fruit and yields in the one case a hundredfold and the other sixty and another thirty. So there's the people even today, some that you may know, that believe but not with the depth of the belief that needs to happen, not with the depth that believes, I believe he's Jesus, I believe he's the Son of God, I believe he came for this need, and I've got that need. That's the difference of the faith. This verse is pretty much saying that Jesus did not entrust himself to them, and one, one way you could say it is Jesus had no faith in their faith. He knew it was in their hearts. He knew what was in the state of their heart. He knew it was in Nathaniel's heart when he saw him under that fig tree. He knows a genuine seeker and a genuine faith, a heart that acknowledges Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, worthy of praise, worthy to take care of all of your needs, worthy to just be the ultimate answer to everything. So this passage that we just looked at, is pretty much the picture of salvation and our need. They ran out of wine. There was a human need. 
Jesus is the only one to fix it. The cleansing of the temple is the Holy Spirit, just hatred of sin and impurity and how we as believers need to continually confess our sin and repent and keep it clean. And then when we have the discussion of his resurrection there, it's talking about letting us know that God provides new life in Christ. It's a faith, a true faith that believes in the purpose of why Jesus came and acknowledges that we have that need. So we need to ask ourselves, most of you in here have already had Jesus give us a new heart. But there's those little things in life that we sometimes don't let him fix, like, where are my keys? I mean, I'm telling you, if we can be thankful for that, I was running late today and I hit green lights all the way in. Who did I thank? I mean, <laughs> those little things, right? Those little things matter. We have to be aware of him. He is sovereign. The wedding ceremony was complete because of Jesus. The temple was cleansed because of Jesus. We will be one with him in a marriage feast of the Lamb because of Jesus. We are washed in the blood because of Jesus. God, we just thank you that you have come, entered our world divinely, and, and brought us the solution to our need. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen.